Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Will Davis, flocking like a goose. And I'm Leah Richards, flocking like a whole flock of geese. In a trench coat? No, just in their feathers. Geese aren't very good at wearing trench coats, they have trouble with sleeves. Is that why they keep breaking men's arms, or is that swans? That's swans. But swans break men's arms, they give you the trouble with a trench coat. Geese are just furious. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to stop that word early. Geese are just fury. <laughs> we'll get to the geese a little bit later, but first we have to start off with some science and psychology fresh from the internet just for you. This first story of our episode coming to you from the Association for Psychological Science. So they should know a thing or two about science and psychology. I mean, ideally, yes. And they've been looking at that thing which many of us who have office-based day jobs spend really an awful lot of time doing. Meetings. How can they be made useful? We've all had that kind of meeting where you're sat around the desk and think, this could have been an email. We'll affix a TPS sheet to the top of our daily reporting pile if that's what we need to do. This doesn't take a PowerPoint to explain. This doesn't take turning the lights out and making everyone just that little bit more sleepy at two o'clock in the afternoon. But if you've got to have a meeting, then let's make it as pleasurable as possible. You know, biscuit selection, teas and coffees, that sort of thing. And a side-serving of psychology, coming to us from a couple of researchers, namely Jason Ross, Joseph Allen, both of whom are from the University of Nebraska-Omaha, and Dana Verhoeven and Marisa Shuffler from Clemson University. Their report is published in the journal Current Directions in Psychological Science, and opens in the press release with the bold quote of, Meetings are generally bad, but meeting science shows us there's concrete ways that we can improve them. This is according to Joseph Allen. Leaders can be more organised, start on time, and encourage a safe sharing environment. Attendees can come prepared, be on time, and participate. The team had noted that while there is an awful lot of advice out there for managers and such like on how to have a successful meeting, a lot of it wasn't based in any sort of research whatsoever, and in fact isn't at all backed up by the research that there is. So they've done some research. And they've got some advice for you. They've broken it up into a couple of things you can do before, during, and after the meeting. And this all really does sound like just generally good advice for meetings and for life and for conversations that you might need to have just any time. The first point is don't have meetings just to share information. Like I say, if it can be an email, make it an email. They should involve problem solving, decision making, or substantive discussion. The next point along a very similar vein of make sure everyone knows what you're talking about going in, circulate an agenda. So you have the meeting priorities clear to all stakeholders and attendees and everyone can prepare for what's about to happen. Because the last time I got dragged into a meeting unprepared, I was assigned nine months worth of work on top of the rest of the full-time job I was doing. So be prepared, folks. And the final prep note for your meeting is to make sure you're inviting the right people. You don't need IT there to sort out a marketing question. You don't need marketing there to sort out an administration problem. Though I would caution against leaving out people just because they don't seem to be important enough. We talk a lot about taking viewpoints from all over the place. And while that's not included in this advice, it seems like it should be common sense. And then once you're actually in the meeting, once it's happening and you can't get out unless you really want to make a scene, then the researchers encourage that you use the meeting to encourage contribution, that you have room for humour and being funny, and that any complaints and discussions are redirected and focused to the appropriate people at the appropriate time. 
again, that's just good etiquette. If you're here to meet and to talk, then meet and talk. And in fact, it's good management. If you're regularly holding meetings where everybody gets off topic and it drags on for far longer than necessary. That's not a meeting, that's a podcast. <laughs> yeah, only podcasts people aren't normally obliged to sit through. Thanks, listeners at home. It really means a lot. We appreciate you taking the time. Once the meeting is finished, the first piece of advice, and one which, in my experience, is a bit struggled with, uh, share the minutes. Make sure everyone agrees that what you've agreed on has been agreed upon and knows what you're doing next. And that people who couldn't be there but would have been are kept up to date on anything that was decided. They also say that you should seek feedback on the meeting and anything that's been discussed therein and have a plan for the future, looking ahead to what progress has been made and how it can build into something over the short-term and long-term future. So in summary, prepare for the meeting, be active in the meeting, do something about the meeting. And if all of this sounds like what you're already doing, then thumbs up! You're running a good meeting. You didn't need the video, audio, and motion tracking technology employed by the researchers to develop the analysis of meetings. They do caution at the end that telemeetings and video conferences need more study and how they might have different advantages, disadvantages, but it seems like common sense, rare as it may be in the world today, it still has its place. And if you've been listening to this, realised that you're holding useless meetings and you're about to action this request to make your meetings more useful, congratulations, that's personal growth. You should be very proud of yourself. And we have a very reasonable consultancy fee. You can send any money that you feel you now owe us to <laughs> ko-fi.com forward slash Eureka Nerd. If you've realised that you've been doing meetings wrong all these years, set out tomorrow to start improving that. You might just take one small step of remembering to send the minutes out every time. You'll have a goal, something to work on. And that'll be very psychologically satisfying for you, especially by comparison to a decision to just carrying on. This piece coming to us from marketing professors at INSED, i.e. Business School and Pamplin College of Business, none of whom I've met before, but they all have very interesting names, which is looking at modest goals, that doing something which you can do feels better than doing nothing at all. They looked at a comparison between a goal which was set to maintain the status quo, to keep your key performance indicators at the same rate they currently are, compared to just improving that a tiny bit, just a little bit, and discovered through a lot of self-evaluation from participants that when you tell someone that the goal you are setting for them is just to maintain, to keep sales at the rate that they are, or to just kind of keep a grip on things as they are. Yeah, if you go, we just get on with what you're getting on with, as long as you're delivering as much as you're delivering, that's fine. They start thinking about all the ways that could possibly go wrong. I might be busy next week. I might be off sick. Maybe this was a good week, and next week the sale numbers will be really, really low by comparison. One of my colleagues might quit, and we won't hire anyone new for a bit, and I'll be trying to achieve this by myself. Whereas... If you set them just a small reasonable goal, something which you've probably heard phrased as, as a smart goal, something that is sensible, measurable, appropriate, relevant, and time-bound, then yeah, that's 
a good kind of goal to set. That's something that your brain responds to very well, of saying, I know where we are, this is where we can be. Let's aim for that. Let's keep that movement onwards and upwards. And that framing does work very well for motivating people and getting those results. Now, interestingly, the study doesn't actually mention making the goals smart in that way you might have learned in... Uh... Actually, I think they taught it to us as an A-level as like a personal development thing, but they do mention just making it a modest attainment. So, see if you can boost sales by 2%. See if you can dip under the budget more often than not this year. It's kind of like the contrast between having a grand ambition as a New Year's resolution as opposed to something which you can actually probably do. Yeah, instead of setting out to make over your entire life as your New Year's resolution, I'm going to get fit, lose weight, get a new job, get a new romantic partner, get a new house, move to a new city, just pick one smaller thing, so... Go to the gym two times a week. That would be a lot for me. By the time you're exercising once a week, for a couple of months, you might think, I like this, I'll do it twice a week. Or I'll try a new sport, or I'll join a bigger gym, I'll lift heavier things. It can build in that positive reinforcement way that... The research from all these different institutes seems to suggest. So here's some business advice from us at Eureka Nerd. Know what you're doing going into and out of a meeting. Keep your goals within your grasp. If that's what psychology is, then I picked the wrong job. Actually, I know this is some of what psychology is. I lived with psychology students during my first and second year of university, and one of their entire revision blocks that they were stressing over could be summed up as people who do good things feel good, people who do bad things might feel bad. If you feel bad when you do good things, or good when you do bad things, you are wrong. <laughs> That's psychology. Second year psychology. There at were... an okay university in England. There were probably some names and dates in there. <sighs> and continuing on with things that affect your attitude. If you are listening to us, then chances are you've been on the internet. No, really? Do you think? Do you think people have managed to find our podcast through browsing online? It is a strong possibility. Oh, interesting. I thought they were all tuning in through wind-up radios. I mean, let's not discount the analogue crowd. We live in Bristol. There's bound to be someone here who is strictly ham radio. But in all the time that you've been online, you might have found that people on the internet can be kind of jerks. They can be really, really vile to one another. And it has been suggested before, and it has been researched before, that having that cloak of anonymity of there being screens and stuff in between you and your target might encourage people to behave more badly. There's a kind of disconnect from responsibility and reaction and what you say and what you do, and the idea that if it's the internet, then it doesn't really count. It's fine, it's online. I'm not me when I'm online. I'm some horrible gremlin woven together out of insecurities and broadband. But it's not real. That's not me. And interestingly enough, the piece of work by the Society for Personality and Social Psychology suggests that that perception that might make someone behave badly also makes us underrate how bad that behaviour is as well. Now what they've done is they've got a group of almost 300 students to be shown an image of someone participating in, quote, nerd culture, with a comment of, 
Go back to your mum's basement, nerd. In one of three environments. Face-to-face -face interaction with another human being. Online with social information, so someone's name and other photos. Or online with little social information, so quite divorced from any other context. In another study, of again about 300 people, participants read a remark insulting a woman for making a comment about infrastructure and are presented with a negative comment being made on an online forum with little social information, or as being presented at a public event. And through these two different studies, people express more concern and reaction to the negative comments when they are presented in the face-to-face -face human interaction, compared to if they are just comments left online. And when there's more social information about the people involved, that does increase the negative reaction to those sort of inflammatory or insulting comments, but not all the way up to the reaction of when it appears to have been delivered in public. And if you listen to our last episode, we talked about how the idea of living in a city makes people less kind, really, that there's only so much headspace to go around, and if you think I'm never going to see these people again, that, you know, they are just on the very outskirts or the very fringes of what is your life and your lived experience, and there's less empathy towards them. And that seems to extend into the digital space too, surprising no one at all. But the authors, Curtis Perrier and Joseph Vandello, do leave this press release on a relatively positive note. It seems that these reactions are broadly speaking, formed by the online environments we find ourselves in, and therefore we can build online environments where we do actually recognise that these things are very unpleasant and we should be nice to one another. If anyone knows of a place to be on the internet where people are nice and responsible, somewhere where they do something about any Nazis that are using their platform, that would be nice. So rather than leaving all that negativity online, people do have a sense of decency and what is an appropriate comment to make face-to-face. -face. And communication face-to-face -face does overlap quite a lot with online communication when you can use digital platforms to broadcast your face out into the world. It's a very effective way of spreading message, and people do react a lot more to video than to still images, and to audio than to just words in isolation. We've got really a nice pair of studies here. They are really quite interlinked. The effectiveness of contact with other humans to protect you against potential mental illness, and if you can't necessarily get out of the house, or the people you would like to interact with aren't geographically close to you, what's the most effective way of socialising with them? Well, seeing their face and hearing their voice is probably a good way to go, and video calling platforms such as Skype, other platforms are available, seem effective in helping to combat depression among socially isolated seniors. This first study coming from the Oregon Health and Science University, with research published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. And what those researchers have done is compared the effectiveness of a selection of digital communication tools at helping elderly people to stave off depression. They've looked at video chat technology such as, as you say, Skype or perhaps FaceTime and instant messaging email and social media platforms. And it turns out seeing the face of the person you're interacting with seems to make a big difference. Lead author Alan Teo, who is an associate professor in psychiatry at Oregon Health Science University School of Medicine and researcher at the Portland Healthcare System, doesn't equivocate when he said that 
Video Chat came out as the undisputed champion from this set. Older adults who used video chat technology, such as Skype, had a significantly lower risk of depression. He does say later that he still maintains that face-to-face -face interaction is probably best of all, but if you're looking at the modern American life, we need to consider that communication technologies such as these ones are available. And when we do consider them and compare them, our findings indicate that you're better off Skyping with your dad in Indiana than sending him just a text message on WhatsApp. And while we're on the subject of how best to interact with human beings to help your brain, it might be that actually interacting with someone in person has a strong correlation with lower rates of psychiatric disorders. This research, led by the same Dr. Alan Teo, is putting the human aspect alongside what has been previously discussed as a social media and online platform, and he says that this is a head-to-head -head comparison of time spent socialising on Facebook versus face-to-face -face interaction. It's the time spent in person with friends and family that probably matters most when reducing the symptoms of depression and of post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans. The researchers do make a point of noting that the results can't prove a cause and effect between social contact and better health, and this is a point I'd quite like to stress since the people they're looking at, many of them are military veterans, so they are looking at incidents of, for example, PTSD among their participants. And one of the things about a lot of PTSD symptoms and depression symptoms is it makes it kind of hard to go out and talk to other people. So suggesting a direct causal link would be probably irresponsible and counterproductive. Going, oh, well, you're ill because you're not getting out enough, when actually they're not getting out enough because they're ill. But having some supportive information that, hey, if we want to help these people with psychological conditions that they are working through, and we should, because that's being a decent human being, then here are some tools which can be effective, which can be useful to fit the patient. You can't just go booting people out of the house and tell them to get down the park. It's good for your health. Go on, really. Go. A final quote from Alan Teo here at the end. I think the excitement in the Veteran Association and other health systems about the opportunities associated with online interventions is great, but at the same time this study is a bit of a reminder that the foundation to good mental health care probably starts with promoting good, old-fashioned social connections. I mean, honestly, we're social animals, it's kind of our thing. Psychology news from Eureka Nerd in brief. How to run a meeting. Don't be a jerk online. And be nice. Meet some nice people, have pleasant conversations, it's good for your health. Skype your nan. If your nan can Skype. If you do Skype your nan and she's still asking you on how to set the clock on the videotape recorder, then maybe a phone call or... Just go visit. Yeah. You know, whatever, whatever fits best. So if you turned up to a conference about fluid dynamics, you'd probably expect to be talking about tar or water or maybe even some quantum i feel like quantum guys would turn up eventually probably don't expect to talk about the tour de france do you is france a liquid no but the cyclists might be i'm not sure how i feel about that phraseology <laughs> <laughs> oh no that i'm visualizing that in my head now just a bunch of very wibbly men in vests trying to pedal but their legs don't have enough rigidity and they're just <laughs> flopping in their seats hip flip flip Bradley Wiggins, but runny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, that face was priceless. That was absolutely spectacular. Jelly Bones Bradley Wiggins. I'm so proud of myself. Just a little yellow pool on the ground with a helmet on. Yep. Anyway, the point is, the Tour de France is relevant. To is, fluid, it? is it? Is it? Yeah, the Tour de France is relevant to <laughs> fluid dynamics because <laughs> crowd dynamics and swarming behaviours can be relevant to fluid dynamics. And some research has been done about the behaviour of a bicycle race peloton. Ronnie Bradley Wiggins. <laughs> Sounds like a weird egg dish. <laughs> we should pitch that to the Crafty Egg, the egg-based restaurant there is. <laughs> Not far from our flat. A Runny Wiggins. A Runny Wiggins, yes. Oh, God. Good morning. I'll have the uh, chai latte and a Runny Wiggins. Sorry, you can't stay to chat. I've got to hop on my bike. No, to be fair, Runny Wiggins sounds like something a bully might do to you in the schoolyard. That or a character from a Jeeves and Worcester novel. Oh, yeah. Good old Runny Wiggins. I was at school with him, you know? Pip, pip. Anyway, the peloton. <laughs> let's let's actually talk about the science. Anyway, the peloton. I'm just going to start reading this press release because it's very poetic to begin, really. It's lots of evocative imagery. Whether it's the acrobatics of a flock of starlings or the synchronized swimming of a school of fish, nature is full of examples of large-scale collective behavior. Humans also exhibit this behavior most notably in pelotons, the mass of riders in bicycle races. One of the things that stood out to me about the content of this press release is that the researchers assumed that the peloton behaves in the way it does because of people trying to seek aerodynamic advantages, like a flock of geese flying south form their flying V formation so that they can all use one another's slipstream and they take it in turns going up the front so that no one gets too terribly tired. Turns out they just like to be able to see where everybody else is. <laughs> Cyclists use their eyes to survey the terrain and figure out if they do need to keep pedalling or stop <laughs> pedalling, depending on what there is to pedal across. Oh no, if you're cycle racing, you just need to keep pedalling, because if you stop pedalling, you will fall off. You'd think that just asking people how they cycle would be enough, and they do use that. They have asked questions to cyclists, and that has been a tremendous help, so thanks to the sensible science of the American Physical Society, but I think they kind of went a little bit overboard with how they went about measuring the fluidity of a peloton. Can you put can you put a peloton in a jar? Does it assume the shape of the container? It's not quite that sort of fluid. So, in addition to speaking to the cyclists, which you can do, unlike with geese or fish, they emphasise that point, in fact. It's the last words in the press releases. You can talk to cyclists. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering who you can interact with socially to help your mental health. Talk to a cyclist. Why not? Don't tuck your head in the water and try and chat with the carp. They won't have much to offer you about aerodynamics. Researchers did also use aerial footage to analyse the movement of cyclists during a race. They form waves, you know. If someone touches the brakes, the riders behind them will also slow down to avoid a collision. And if someone moves to one side to avoid an obstacle, like a rock in the road, then other riders will also move to one side to avoid the rock in the road. So longitudinal and transverse waves, I think is the technical term, unless I'm getting those mixed up. I've never heard either of them applied to a bike before, so I really couldn't tell you. 
I know those are descriptive words applied to waves sometimes. I'm not a physicist. Ultimately, though, this research does sound like someone in the lab just got caught watching Eurosport 3 on the TV or something, and they're like, what are you doing? Are you bunking off? Are you not doing your work? Like, I'm assessing the fluid dynamics of uh, cyclists. And they got away with it. So congratulations. <laughs> the research being presented at the American Physical Society's Division of Fluid Dynamics 71st Annual Meeting Probably not where you expected that one quick coffee break to have taken you, but congratulations all the same. I've only just seen that this has been done by a researcher at the Naval Undersea Warfare Centre. What does the Naval Undersea Warfare Centre have to learn from a peloton? What are they doing down there? Training dolphins to do sabotage. On bikes? Maybe. Cycle-powered submarines are a thing, right? This poses many troubling questions. <laughs> Before I fall into a conspiracy hole of, is that where they put all the cyclists during the rest of the year? If they're not on a bike, are they just pedalling away at the bottom of the ocean floor, moving the tectonic plates around? Is that how the Earth spins? Is that really the secret of flat Earth? Is it actually just the training wheel that everyone else is on and they've got cyclists at the edge on the ice wall, pedalling and pedalling and pedalling? Before I fall into that hole... Seems like it's too late. We should probably just tell a few more quick, fun animal stories, because, I mean, that's also good for your mental health. Have you ever wondered what bees do during an eclipse? I haven't, but I know now. And you can know too, thanks to the research of the University of Missouri-Columbia. At 16 points along the path of the total solar eclipse on the 21st of August 2017, Tiny microphones were placed in order to see if the bees kept buzzing in the dark. The rationale for this, from Candace Gallen, Professor of Biological Science at the MU College of Arts and Sciences, is that getting dark in the middle of the day is not something that happens in a bee's normal life. It's a behavioural miscue. Here, darkness is a cue for night that a bee is familiar with, but it's coming at the wrong time of day to they even use it as a cue or not, even if it's completely out of context, and what we found is, yes, they do. Previous research conducted on bee behaviour has noted that they commonly fly slower at dusk and return to their colonies at night, and while bees completely stopped buzzing during the totality, they did continue to fly during the partial eclipse periods either side of it. So you've got bees either flying more slowly or making longer flights. The buzzing gets quiet. The bees all go to bed. And a final study, just to round things out. I really don't want to read any more of this than just the title, so we might leave it there. Research from the Zoological Society of London about the DNA lineage of mystery monkeys. Primates of the Caribbean. In case you were wondering, Jamaica used to have some monkeys that were pretty odd. Apparently they're pretty closely related to nearby mainland monkeys. Just did some weird morphological stuff, as things do when they land on an island and don't have many natural predators. If you consider yourself a weird monkey, or maybe you had a nap during the eclipse, then let us know all about it. Send us word of your animalistic behaviour to EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show and help us defray the costs of hosting and making this whole mad thing, you can support us on Ko-fi. If you'd like to hire us as business consultants to run your meeting and call your gran, then, I mean, yeah, we can do some secretarial work. Although we don't really want to talk to your nan if she's racist, just, just letting people know. Some social media can be good for your health, we've already established that, so drop us a line, 
at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter or on Facebook forward slash Eureka Nerd. But until next time, that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs>